Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to Skaboom Stories, a new series of the Skaboom podcast, which is the audio companion to my new book, Skaboom, an American ska and reggae oral history, now available for pre-sale through DeWolf Publishing. More on that later in the episode. Now that the book is finally finished and going into production, I want to use this series to share a behind-the-scenes look at what readers can expect from the book. In 400-plus pages across 19 chapters, I've attempted to knit together the origin stories of groups of passionate musical pioneers who helped create the uniquely American version of ska and reggae. I don't even know what to say about Fishbone that hasn't already been said. They remain, hands down, the best live band I've ever seen. I distinctly remember hearing their very first EP being played inside Tower Records in New York City in 1985 when it was first released. Once I heard the skanking chords from Party at Ground Zero blasting through the store's speakers, I ran over to the counter and asked the clerk what was on the turntable. Fishbone, he shouted. I bought the record on the spot. Go back in your mind, if you can, to the first time you saw the cover of the first Fishbone EP. Like the picture of Clyde Grimes on the cover of my book, it's a look at a new American version of ska in real time. Village Voice music critic Robert Criscow famously opined of the cover, quote, looking like postmodern vaudevillians who've just signed themselves in at the mental hospital with sartorial details appropriated from the specials, Dizzy Gillespie, Jimi Hendrix, Step and Fetch It, and whoever, these six black L.A. teenagers show a flair for visual outrage worthy of George Clinton himself. That picture on the cover of the EP was photographed by John Scarpetti, and the energy conveyed in the album cover photo is mesmerizing. The six members of the band are crammed into a small, decrepit room. Two, Kendall and Chris, levitate in mid-jump, Drummer Fish seems bemused by the scene in front of him. Norwood and Dirty Walt both seem to be summoning some unseen spirits. And Angelo, looking straight at the camera with a big smile on his face, appears to welcome the viewer into the mad, crazy world of the band and the bouncing, kinetic sounds contained on the vinyl grooves inside. The photo is pure visual gold. Fishbone have been one of my favorite bands ever since I picked up that EP in 1985. And my fishbone t-shirt with bone in the USA on the back, which I loved to wear to taunt all the Bruce Springsteen loving kids I went to school with in New Jersey, was a staple of my college wardrobe. I had the good fortune to see the band perform one of their legendary shows at the Ritz in New York City on Halloween in 1985 on a bill that included 24-7 Spies and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It remains one of the best live musical experiences that I've ever had. Despite all that, I chose not to include a chapter on Fishbone in Ska Boom. Believe me, it was a very difficult decision. It's not that I didn't want to include them and their origin story, which is amazing. I really did. I mean, just give some of it a listen. Right here was my locker. And this is where the John Fisher fan club started. 
I turned and I asked a couple girls like, hey, I'm going to start a fan club for me. <laughs> Want to be in it? That's just his personality, really. You know, he just, you know, kind of the popular kind of guy. You know, he had the Jerry Curl. You know, he was one of the few cats in junior high school with a full beard, you know, mustache. You can see him into the liquor store. He picks something up for you. You know, it was kind of creepy, you know, like a little grown man running around. <laughs> Norwood scared the shit out of everyone to the fact where people joined the fan club out of fear. This is where all the guys, we used to hang out, laughing, telling jokes, fighting. Kendall was always funny. He could always crack on somebody pretty good, break them down. Kendall always was so intelligent that he could acclimate to just, if he put his mind to learning the fucking guitar, he was going to learn the guitar. He just kind of just filed his way through. He was going to play guitar his way and not sound like anybody else. You know, me and Fish were already playing music together, so in our minds, we was already a band waiting for other members. And then starting in ninth grade, there was this new black kid that nobody knew. He was different from all of us in a way, because he smiled all the time. I was out here with the fine people in the green line, and quiet. I wanted to be here. They were the black guys. I'm like, oh, shit, some black people. Let me talk to them and see if they like the same thing I like. We're sitting in some exactly like these kind of desks right here, and he started sending little notes to me from back in the class. It's all in this, like, Bootsy speak. Like, hey, baby, Baba, let's make it funky and, you know, Roto-Rooter all day, Baba. And I'm going, like, what in the hell is this? What's up with this kid? And he was asking me if he could be in the band. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. And we got over to this place where it is, these pomegranate trees. I reached up and I picked the pomegranate off and I smashed it in his face. There wasn't no goddamn pomegranate. This is a persimmon. He smushed in my face. And then, you know, it's like, okay, you could be in the band. <laughs> That's an excerpt about the band's origin story from Everyday Sunshine, the story of Fishbone, the fantastic 2011 documentary about the band by Lev Anderson and Chris Metzler, which, if you haven't seen, you must. So from my perspective, that was going to be a very, very hard act to follow. And frankly, the decision really came down to this. If I included Fishbone, I wouldn't be able to include a chapter on one of the important bands you've probably never heard of, but whose story you also really need to know. Now, that doesn't mean Fishbone isn't included in the book. Quite the opposite. I'd venture to say that nearly every band mentions or name-checked Fishbone. Their first EP was ubiquitous in the mid-80s among people who were into ska. I was also able to interview the band's bassist, Norwood Fisher, who's featured in the chapter on The Untouchables. As it turns out, Norwood's father lived around the block from the On Club in the Silver Lake section of L.A., and the club and his early focus on ska and reggae, as well as the place that gave rise to the Untouchables, had a huge influence on Norwood and his bandmates and the trajectory of Fishbone.
you know, pretty early, I thought we invented Sky. <laughs> but I didn't know what it was called. Right. <laughs> right? We were yeah. just playing with reggae rhythms, and we married it with punk rock energy, and I was like, oh, we invented something new, punk rock reggae, what are we going to call it? But I, Walt, Walt, you know, broke out the English beat and the selector, those were the first Sky bands that I heard. Right. And then eventually we saw decline of Western civilization and um, dance craze as a double feature at the Fox Theater in Venice. And it changed everything. That's Norwood Fisher, who also shared how the band's career was changed by discovering and later seeing the Untouchables. So shortly after that, like, now we're scouring these these free papers, planning how we are going to enter the club scene, and there's this band, the Untouchables, that's playing around and growing. That's, that's like, you know, a mob sky band of L.A. guys. Right. You know, so we're like, okay, we need to check these dudes out. They seem to get really popular. And, you know, we, we would know Madame Wong's because it was in Decline of Western Civilization. And then there's the On Club, which seems to be where Sky and reggae bands can play a lot. And Untouchables were playing there. We never set out to go try to get in. Um, but when the Untouchables hit a stride, because they had caught on, they played a residency at the Roxy. I right. believe it was Thursday night. I could be wrong. That had to be 82, maybe. It's 81, 82, somewhere in there. By then, we had invested in trench coats and, you know, buttons and, you know, started getting, getting geared up. So you you were you were trying to be rude boys, exactly. Okay. Well, we was we was doing it with our own spin on it, of course. Sure. But yeah. And eventually, we we took our asses down to the Roxy to see the Untouchables. You know, fucking amazing. Really? What was that? What was it really like for you to see them that first time? What what what, what was that experience like? It was like to watch a band rock an audience so hard was incredible. Because we had seen, you know, seeing Dance Craze, seeing the specials on Saturday Night Live, you know. It was probably the first band that we saw that brought that kind of energy. Yeah. You know, it was it was 
impactful. You know, Clyde was smooth. The whole band, though, Chuck, fucking, fucking uh, Jerry, motherfuckers was, they were L.A. Kings. I still call them Kings to this day. <laughs> I asked Steve Schaefer of the Duff God to Ska blog and the author of the Duff God to Two-Tone to write an essay that serves as the introduction to my book. There's a very good reason I tapped Steve to do this. He had a front row seat to watch the birth of American Ska in the 90s as the director of promotions, marketing, and production for Moon Ska Records. Steve's essay helps provide important context for what was going on with Ska in the early and mid-80s and helps to ground the 19 chapters that follow. Steve and I had several long conversations about when we thought American Ska hit an important inflection point. We agreed that 1985 was a key year for Ska in the good old USA. As it turns out, three seminal Ska albums were released that year. Fishbone's self-titled EP on Columbia Records, The Untouchables' Wild Child LP for Stiff Records, and The Toasters' self-titled EP on their own independent Moon Ska label. Ska Boom features comprehensive chapters on the origin stories of two of these three bands. So why 1985? As Steve notes in his essay, none of these releases is purely a ska record, particularly when compared to the debut albums of all the two-tone albums that influenced them. They often veer off into ska's many musical tributaries. Through Fishbone, The Toasters, and The Untouchables, ska in the United States had evolved, mutated really, into something that both reclaimed this Jamaican genre's Black American origins in jazz, R&B, and early rock and roll, and drew considerable inspiration not from Ska's 1960s practitioners, but Britain's two-tone bands, and emerged as something fresh and new, a uniquely American version of Ska. It's not hyperbole to state that in the later half of the 80s, everyone in America who liked Ska had these three albums in their collections. The fact that there were three incredible ska releases by American bands, two with major label promotion behind them, and one, the first domestic indie ska release ever to secure national distribution, was extraordinary and unprecedented. Not only did these three American ska releases give the genre a much greater visibility within the music industry and sway numerous fans to their cause, these records fed the small but ravenous and integrated ska scenes in regions across the U.S., encouraging existing bands to keep on going and aspire to greatness, as well as inspiring countless new ones to spring up to join the fray. The idea being, if they can make it, so can we. The ska punk and ska core scenes practically sprang from Fishbone. Ska soul bands followed in the untouchable steps, and modern post-two-tone acts took their cues from the toasters. As one of the only all-African-American bands to emerge from the 80s, along with Living Color, Fishbone were a uniquely American cultural and musical phenomena. They exploded out of the Los Angeles music scene of the early 80s, with ska as their foundation for their early sound. They quickly expanded their musical palette to include everything from punk to funk to metal to rock into a unique and uncompromising musical stew. Poised to break out of the alternative music scene of the early 90s, they were confronted by a variety of forces that conspired against them, 
first a music industry that seemed confused and unwilling to market them to a wider mainstream audience. But the band also suffered from a self-inflicted destructive streak that often ended up taking them one step forward, but then two steps back. Despite some uneven albums and a shifting range of personnel and personal problems, their live shows always remained free of the ongoing trials and tribulations they endured. Whatever problems they might be having, they left it off stage or used it to fuel an even more energetic and intense performance. The show always went on. And while the Untouchables were the kings of L.A. ska for an important period of time, their reign was eventually eclipsed by the younger and more versatile Fishbone, who appealed to a broader audience. I'll let Eric Dinwiddie, who helped to spread ska in the San Francisco area in the 80s with his band The Uptones, sum up his first experience seeing and sharing a bill with Fishbone. And, uh, and again, it was them coming up to Santa Cruz, so that was sort of in our sphere of where we had a big draw, and they were just getting started, right? Um, but interesting little twist for them is they got signed really early on. David Kahn, the guy that told me about him, he signed into Columbia Records. And, uh, you know, so I was already aware that they had this crazy rave review from my trusted friend Bobby, and that David Kahn saw fit to get him a record deal out the fucking gate. So I was like, I was already ready, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, okay, what's going to happen? So we go down there, and and we get to watch them play before us, right? And let me just say, for the record, you don't want to play after Fishbowl. <laughs> One of the most devastating over-the-top live performances that I had ever and will ever see. And uh, uh, it, it was just, just ferocious. They, they, they ran onto the stage, you know. There was no walking. And then they took the part. I mean, they, you know, I think, I, think they, I think they started with, um, uh, um, I think it was Ugly. No, no, it wasn't Ugly. It was, one, it was one that comes right off the gate. I can't remember but they played the material from their first EP and plus some of their stuff from their uh, original cassette demo, which you just should try and get a hold of if you don't have it. Um, an early version of Alcoholic and some other just, just fantastic, fantastic. Uh, I, I uh, you know, and I, and I the, the, the part of me that's like a competitive band guy, like I just, I just, I just let that go. I'm like, that's of this, this game is over. <laughs> and then we, you know, we went out and we did our set and we had a good time and our fans loved us. And, 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 and every single person that was there to see us that happened to catch their set also was a Fishbone fan now, right? Absolutely every single person. It was the kind of thing where, where they won over the whole, they, 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 they won over the, the uh, you know, Everybody, and 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 uh, and we're driving home, and we're talking about them the whole the whole way home. And of course, the, the coolest part about it is what nice guys they were. I mean, they were like really intense and ferocious, uh, and, and and just super interested. And we, just, I just knew it was like it was like what the fuck? We're in the we're in the presence of this incredible thing um, that just completely realized, and it was humbling. I realized that that you know they had. Uh, a solid and total direction that was their own 
And um, that thing I was talking about earlier about when your whole group was sort of firing on the same cylinders and pu- pushing in the same direction, they had that like, like, like nuclear. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ska Boom Stories. The book is now available for presale through DeWolf Publishing at DeWolf.com. That's D-I-W-U-L-F.com. The first 500 presale orders will receive a free 80-minute CD mix called Ska American Style, courtesy of DJ Chuck Wren and Jump Up Records, which digs deep into the obscure world of privately pressed records, proving that American ska roots were firmly planted during the 80s alternative music underground. Visit DeWolf.com to order. If you've listened and received some value from this episode, then please help support the podcast for as little as $3 per month on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com backslash Podcast for more information. Thanks and take care.